You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. It happened gradually, and then it happened all at once. You stand at the edge of the estuary that empties itself into the sea at your feet. Across the way, when the day is clear, you can see the cliffs like the ones at your back, once connected across a vast landscape that no longer exists, the drowned land. You were not born then, but you remember, the way everyone remembers. The elders still speak of how the rivers thrashed in their ancient riverbeds, how the marshes rose up and engulfed the forests, how the deer ran blind and the people all stopped what they were doing to watch the wall of death bear down upon them. Your grandmother was a girl then. Ever since, your people have been trying to outclimb the sea. You had to fight for this valley between protective highlands, cliffs at your back and a bank of hills that guards against the sea rise, a river that winds through a forest that must have once stretched into the vanished lands. This is a good life, a place you can stay for now, where you build everything you need to carve a life out of the world. There are fish in the water. There are deer in the forests. There are birds on the estuary. It is only a remnant of what had come before, though. Once you had so much more. Once nobody had to fight. There was enough for everyone. Sometimes in the dark you hear their songs. On clear nights, when the sea is calm, Sometimes you dream their dreams, the denizens of the drowned land. They whisper that your days are numbered. They tell you that one day the sea will come walking up your inlet, and your descendants will flee, and they'll never stop fleeing down through the millennia until they've forgotten why they flee or where they came from, the great wall of death dogging their steps, all of them refugees, unknowing, from the unremembered homeland. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy, here to buck the trend and give you some positivity. This is Ancient History Fangirl, where we are known for our positivity. And this is the season of natural disasters, which is a cheery topic for children. If you love volcanoes as much as I do, then you are absolutely in heaven this season because, whew, give me, give me a good volcano story. This one isn't a volcano story, but it is a tsunami story, but I don't want to give away the ending. Yeah, no, this is not a volcano story, but it's still fascinating. According to legend, a low-lying kingdom once existed between the British mainland and the Isles of Scilly, a group of five islands about 24 miles off the southwestern coast of Cornwall. That kingdom was the land of Lioness, and it was a place of fertile, low-lying plains, a land of richness, a land of plenty. It was studded with churches and little farming villages. The legend says that Lioness was swallowed by the sea in one single cataclysmic night after the people of Lioness committed an act so horrible, so completely unforgivable, that it inspired God to wipe them off the face of the earth, because that is what God is wont to do. This sounds very Atalantean to me. That's all I'm going to say about that. Right? What did these people do? What horrible crime did they commit? Nobody knows. 
The act itself is not recorded in any ancient sources. Perhaps it was too horrible to even be written down. That's the legend. What we do know is that God sent a massive wave that engulfed the kingdom. They say you can still hear the church bells ringing off the coast on calm days. This story starts around 18,000 years ago, when the great ice sheet that held Europe in its grip slowly began to recede. No, it starts much later than that. It starts in the 1930s, when Dutch fishermen started using a new type of net to pull up fish in the North Sea. I love that this myth involves church bells, because, like, legitimately... This is so much more ancient than than church bells. But anyway. <laughs> it's very Christianized, you know? It just shows you, like, every single myth and um, oral history from this time just got put through the Christian mill. Oh, yeah. And that's what fascinates me, because this story we're about to tell you as ancient history fangirl is going to be very, very old, well before the Christian faith or you would have had church bells. So anyway, let's talk about it. The North Sea is a great body of water that fills the gap between Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, and Norway. It stretches 600 miles long and 360 miles wide, covering over 220,000 square miles in total. It's shallow compared to other seas. The deepest part is the Norwegian Trench, a deep undersea valley that curves along the southern coast of Norway. It's about 2,379 feet deep. One of the shallower parts of the North Sea is the Dogger Bank, an underwater highland where the sea is only about 50 to 100 feet deep. The Dogger Bank is about 6,800 square miles in area, and it lies about 62 miles off Britain's east coast. It's roughly the size of the American state of New Hampshire. The Dogger Bank has a reputation as an excellent fishing ground. In fact, the Dogger part is named for a kind of Dutch fishing boat that dates from around the 1400s. And it's here that Dutch fishermen in 1931 made a startling discovery. So in that time, boats were just starting to use a new type of net, or fishermen were just starting to fisher people, fisher people, were just starting to use a new type of net that got dragged along the ocean floor picking up everything in its path, fish, sticks, rocks, debris, whatever else was down there, and hauling it back up. And one boat, a Dutch boat called the Kalinda, went out and dragged its net across the Dogger Bank, and what it brought up, in addition to lots of fish and mud and probably sea turtles and endangered species, was a chunk of peat. I don't know if there's sea turtles in the North Sea. Probably not. The important thing here is this chunk of peat, okay? (laughs) There might have been sea turtles. Now this in itself was weird. Peat is partially decayed organic matter, mostly vegetation, that usually forms in still-standing fresh water over hundreds and thousands of years. It takes thousands of years of plants and sometimes animals dying in the same place in a wet freshwater environment to create peat bogs. Peat doesn't form at the bottom of the ocean. But that wasn't the most interesting thing. When they broke open the chunk of peat, what they found was a barbed spear point carved from deer antler from the Mesolithic era, from roughly around 10,000 to 4,000 BC. Now you could argue that maybe a fisherman from the Mesolithic era dropped the spear point out of a boat thousands of years ago. Okay, but then, leaving aside that we don't think people in the Mesolithic had boats that could go this far out into the ocean, I mean, they basically just had these little dugout canoes as far as we know. How did the spear point get encased in peat? Peat doesn't form at the bottom of the ocean, like we said. Did some fishermen just happen to have a chunk of peat on their boat with a spear point in it that they dropped into the ocean? I mean, that is weird. This is getting even weirder. Added to that is that this chunk of peat was not a small chunk. I've seen it described as a boulder. Why would some Mesolithic fishermen be carrying a boulder of peat in their boat? If this had happened just one time, it might be a fluke. But it wasn't the only thing that the fishermen dredged up. Over the next few decades, thousands of other artifacts would come to light from the bottom of the North Sea. Antler spear points, stone tools, and weapons. And the remains of mammoths, lions, Neanderthals, and other animals, even human bones. These artifacts painted a picture of a lost world that had disappeared into the sea long before recorded history. It took decades for researchers to piece things together. When they did, they found the picture was larger than anyone had ever imagined. It appears that underneath the North Sea stretches a vast drowned landscape that thousands of people and animals once called home. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So what was this landscape exactly? Hopefully I get all this right. I'm still trying to learn about Ice Ages. It's a little bit technical for me, but from what I understand, we're technically still in an Ice Age because all Ice Age means is that there are glaciers. Parts of the Earth are covered in glaciers, which is still true. So, throughout its history, the Earth has cycled through numerous warm periods and ice ages. The first ice age happened perhaps 2.1 billion years ago, and the most severe one, the Cryogenian Ice Age, occurred from roughly 720 to 630 million years ago, when glaciers may have covered the whole Earth. Scientists refer to this as the Snowball Earth period. Most ice ages don't involve glaciers covering the whole Earth. They mainly just expand and contract from the poles. Technically, like I said, we're currently still in an ice age, the Quaternary Ice Age. And during this time, the planet has experienced cycles of glaciation, with glaciers growing and shrinking on timescales of 40,000 to 100,000 years, roughly. Our next period of expanding glaciation was due in 50,000 years or so, but global warming has postponed that by 100,000 to maybe 500,000 years, theoretically. Anyway, glaciers are the great equalizer. They grind down mountain ranges, riverbeds, lakes, and topography to meet beneath them. And every time they retreat, they reveal a landscape transformed. There have been periods of hundreds of thousands of years when the entirety of the North Sea was blanketed by ice, usually along with the rest of Europe, or parts of it. The most recent time was during the last glacial maximum, which lasted from roughly 33,000 to 20,000 years ago. During this time, most of Europe was covered in ice and the seas were significantly lower than they are today. And when the ice started to retreat, sometime around 20,000 years ago, the Europe that was revealed was very different than what we know today. The seas were much lower than they are now. The Britain and Ireland that emerged from the ice were not separate islands. They were connected to each other and the mainland of Europe, with coastlines miles, sometimes hundreds of miles, farther out into the sea than they are today. And in place of the North Sea, there was dry land, a single landmass, connecting what's now Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, France, and Belgium with the UK and Ireland. There was no English Channel or Irish Sea. The Hebrides, the Orkneys, yes, even the Isles of Scilly, were simply hills and highlands that dotted the ancient landscape. Everything was doggerland. This was always a landscape in flux. It changed as the ice sheets advanced and the seas gradually rose. So some maps you see will look different depending on the time period they're depicting. And there's also not complete scientific consensus on where all the boundaries of Doggerland were. But when I first started this episode, I kind of thought that Doggerland, this this landscape that is now under the sea, was like the English Channel. And it turns out it was so much bigger. We're talking about a lowland area roughly the size of maybe Germany or France at some points in its history. According to one article in Archaeology magazine, quote, The floor of the North Sea is now recognized as the largest well-preserved prehistoric archaeological landscape in the world. So what did this landscape look like? Let's start at the beginning. In the decades after the first discovery in the 1930s, scientists asked fishermen to bring them any artifacts they dredged up in their nets along with the precise locations of where those artifacts came from. And fishermen complied, 
More recently, extensive seismic mapping and analysis has been done using technologies from the oil and gas sector to map out the topography of Doggerland. So we now have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. Studies show that during the last cold period, between 125,000 and 18,000 years ago, give or take, when this area wasn't blanketed in ice, Doggerland would have been a cold, dry steppe, home to mammoths, woolly rhinos, herds of aurochs and reindeer and horses, and other cold-weather megafauna. Neanderthals lived here too. The sea levels were roughly 450 feet lower than they are today, and Doggerland may have been at its largest then, although some of it may have been under glaciers. But then, around roughly 18,000 to 10,000 years ago, the dates are fuzzy, temperatures got warmer, and, you know, the Younger Dryas was in amidst that, so that affected it too, but this is like, there, there was a cycle. Around then, things got warmer. We started to enter the epoch we're in today, known as the Holocene Epoch. Glaciers slowly melted, and the lowlands of Doggerland became inundated with fresh water flowing from the glaciers as well as salt water rising up from the seas. It became a land of lakes, marshes, peat bogs, and rivers. Vast, enormous rivers that dwarfed the mightiest river systems of Europe today. It would have been a wetland paradise. Forests grew, first birch and pine, and later elm, oak, alder, and hazel. The forests of Doggerland were vast and primeval. These forests brought with them incredible natural resources, everything from nuts, berries, and edible plants to a habitat for deer, rabbits, boar, and other animals that could be hunted. As the ancient cold tundra withdrew, so did the megafauna, the saber-toothed cats and the mammoths, and less dangerous yet still tasty and very plentiful animals moved in. Along with them came migratory birds, fish, and aquatic animals such as otters, beavers, and more. And with them, people. Some of the most intimate traces of people who lived in Doggerland come from the phenomena known as Noah's Woods. On the coastlines around the edges of the North Sea all across Europe, there are strange, petrified forests under the sand. The forests are mostly broken stumps and fallen logs that emerge on beaches at low tide or get uncovered when large areas of sand gets blown away after storms. The forests appear at the tideline and seem to extend into the sea. Gentlemen scholars in the 1800s noticed these ancient, mysterious, petrified forests and called them Noah's Woods. They saw them as proof of the great flood from the Bible. Later, researchers have found that they date from the Mesolithic roughly between 12,000 and 6,000 BC, when there was no English Channel and no North Sea. There are relics from a time when vast primeval forests stretched unbroken from the western coastlines of Ireland all the way to the European continent. These were old-growth forests of oak, alder, hazel, and elm, and with few people chopping them down, these trees would have been enormous, like few forests that exist today. I've seen some researchers describe the forests of Mesolithic Doggerland as Tolkien-esque. Noah's woods have been found submerged on the banks of the Thames. They've been found on the eastern and western edges of Britain, and they've been found, more recently, under the sea. Some of these forests hide intriguing glimpses, footprints leading from the edge of what we consider Britain today into the sea, into a vanished world. In Low Hawksley in Northumberland, a 650-foot stretch of beach was found concealing the twisted remains of preserved oak, alder, and birch trees dating from 7,000 years ago, as well as human and animal footprints from the Mesolithic. The animals include brown bears, red deer, and wild boar, and the footprints are from adults and children, some of them wearing leather shoes. The shoes, right? Like, you think of people as being naked all the time back then, but they weren't. I mean, as someone who lived in the UK for 16 years, there's no way you wouldn't have shoes certain times a year. Yeah, you'd have to. At Formby Point in Lancashire, along a beach that faces the Irish Sea, over 50 human footprints have been found from as far back as 9000 BC, as well as the footprints of red deer, the most common, roe deer, wolves, dogs, lynx, cranes, wild boar, and many different types of seabirds. They had domesticated dogs, by the way, the people of Doggerland. Humans hunted these animals, but one thing that researchers note is that you never find human footprints within the animal footprints, suggesting the humans had a special reverence for the animals they hunted. Today, this area is a beach, 
When these footprints were laid down, it would have been a salt marsh. An analysis of the footprints over time shows that the environment was once teeming with wildlife. We've seen it described as a kind of European Serengeti. But as the Mesolithic passed into the Neolithic period, when Doggerland was no more, human footprints increased and traces of other animals drastically reduced. Doggerland was, in its heyday, a forest and wetland paradise, even richer than the Neolithic time that came after. And as enormous as those forests were, the wetlands would have been equally as impressive, if not more so. Our book, Women of Myth, is out in bookshops and online. It's available worldwide in hardback, ebook, and audio. Women of Myth tells the stories of 50 exceptional heroines, goddesses, and monsters in world mythology. It's beautifully illustrated by Sarah Richard, and it makes the perfect gift for yourself or someone else who happens to love mythology. Look for Women of Myth wherever books are sold. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a closer look at Doggerland's waterways. In 2019, when researchers first used seismic data from oil and gas exploration to map the topography of Doggerland, the very first image that arose out of the sea of data was a huge riverbed that cut across the Dogger Bank more than 10,000 years ago. That river would have been 2,000 feet across. It was named the Shotton River after one of the researchers involved in its reconstruction. This wasn't the only enormous river that wound its way through Doggerland. Recent topographical maps show immense river systems, as large and imposing as the great rivers of Europe, the Thames, the Rhine, the Seine, these rivers were hotbeds of human habitation. In fact, scientists have found that many of the human artifacts dredged up in fishing nets have come from an area in Doggerland called, in Dutch, de stekels, in English, the spines. These are what look like underwater ridges now. But when this was dry land, these were riverbeds. Steep-sided, deep riverbeds where it seemed people congregated. All of the great rivers of Europe, rivers that we know today, once flowed into Doggerland and joined there. The Thames, the Seine, the Rhine, the Scheldt, the Moss, all were once just tributaries of a much greater river that wound through Doggerland, eventually veering south to flow into a vast estuary in what's now the English Channel that flowed out into the Atlantic Ocean. So much flowing. Things flowed back then. Just south of the Dogger Bank, which would have been a highland area right in the center of Doggerland, between the UK and Denmark, there is a deep region of the North Sea called the Outer Silver Pit. Some historians believe that at one point, more than half a million years ago, it may have been the bed of an immense river. Others believe that during the Mesolithic period, the riverbed had shifted, and this was actually a large lake. Along with this enormous lake, or perhaps riverbed, there would have been vast wetlands, both freshwater and saltwater, and, you know, mixed, whatever that is. The word is brackish, so what you get when you when salt water and fresh water mix is brackish water. It's water in between the two. Sometimes you'll see things like alligators living there. You'll also get petrified forests at this area, and I learned about this recently visiting my family in North Carolina, um, because there's these huge trees. They don't have any leaves, and they're petrified because at one point in time, the waters mixed, and they went from being in an area where there was fresh water, and the tide of a tidal river came up, and that area had salt water in it, and it petrified the wood. So they stand there like ghosts. That is kind of exactly what happened in Doggerland to these incredibly huge, vast Tolkien-esque forests. So there would have been just petrified forests, like countries of them. Yeah, because they start taking up the water from their root system, and the water they're taking in is poison, right? Because it's salt water. We're going to get to that, but yes... Imagine how haunted that would be. I've seen it. I'll try, um, if I get a chance, to take some pictures of some of the, the brackish swamp area around here, because it's really haunting. Along with this enormous lake, there would have been vast wetlands. Freshwater, saltwater, brackish. 
as well as estuaries, coastlines, lagoons, archipelagos, peat bogs, vast salt and freshwater marshes, miles and miles of coastline, and legendary rivers that would have dwarfed the greatest rivers in Europe today. Those rivers would have had names. They would have been intimately known by the people who called this place home. So who were those people? Who were the people of Doggerland, and what do we know about them? Since the 1930s, hundreds of artifacts have been dredged up from the bottom. Antler bone harpoons and hunting spear points, stone tools, animal bones, carved with artistic designs, human bones, and more. Most of the artifacts we've found so far suggest a hunting and gathering lifestyle. For a long time, the established science was that the people of Doggerland were seasonal hunter-gatherers who moved with the herds and the tides, never staying in one place for long. They did not have permanent homes, more like lightweight, tent-like structures that could be easily thrown up, taken down, and carried around. But some more recent discoveries have challenged the idea that people in the Mesolithic didn't have permanent settlements. Much of this evidence has been found in areas that are not currently underwater, so not in Doggerland proper. These sites where these artifacts have been found would have been contemporary to, and probably culturally similar with, the inhabitants of Doggerland. For instance, in 2011, the remains of a structure was found in Howick, Northumberland, on the edge of the North Sea. It was discovered when an amateur archaeologist found a bunch of flint tools sticking out of an eroded sandy cliff face near the sea. Man, I want to just find things sticking out of cliff faces. But good things, not dead bodies. I feel like a lot of the time it would be a dead body of some kind. (laughs) Can I just find like a hoard of like gold and brooches and jewelry? That's what I want. With my luck, it's going to be dead bodies. <laughs> your luck and your true crime fascination. <laughs> anyway, this site came to be known as Howick House. And this uh, site is sometimes characterized as Britain's oldest house. Actually, Star Car, which we'll talk about next in this episode, is older. But this house is really old. Radiocarbon dating suggested the house was built around 7,600 BC, during the time of Doggerland and was in use for about a hundred years continuously. This was a permanent occupation. Two other houses have since been discovered at the same site. Howick House stood on a cliff overlooking the sea. There was a river nearby, providing a valuable source of fresh water. The house itself was circular, and I've seen a reproduction that makes it look kind of like a Celtic roundhouse, Jen, but with a very steep conical roof that extends to the ground, kind of like a witch's hat. But what the roof looked like, I think, is conjecture. It seems to be like a like an ancient version of a Celtic roundhouse, just from what I can see. Inside, the floor seems to have been carved into a sort of hollow depression lower than the ground around it, with multiple shallow hearths containing charcoal, burnt nutshells, and bone fragments. Roughly 130 miles south of this, there's an even older site. Star Car is a Mesolithic settlement near Scarborough that dates from around 9300 BC and was in use for roughly 1,180 years. It was abandoned in 8480 BC. Starkar also currently overlooks the sea, but it was once located on the shores of an ancient lake. It was discovered under what's now a peat bog. So we have a lot of well-preserved organic materials that would otherwise have been lost. Starkar has multiple permanent houses, similar to Howick or Howick House. Some appear to have floors covered in a natural rug of moss reeds, or other soft plant materials. There was also a large wooden platform built by the lakeshore with an unknown purpose, the oldest example of carpentry ever found in Europe. Their houses were carpeted. Well, I have thoughts about what those carpets might have been. Well, kind of like the vegetative mats at at Vindolanda. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I don't think they were... At Vindolanda, I don't think they were real carpets. I think they were probably used as a catch-all particularly if they had domesticated animals inside during cold periods. I don't know if they had domesticated animals back then. Like, I think they didn't, except there's a possibility that they did have domesticated or at least partially domesticated dogs. That's something dogs, maybe cats? I haven't found evidence of cats, um, but I do think that they may have had dogs. I don't think they had, like, sheep and cows and stuff. But yeah, like, the carpeting... The way that ancient peoples used carpeting, which up until the medieval era, people were putting rushes on their floor for this exact reason, right? Like it was um, something that made the the ground softer, something you could maybe sleep on, something that caught all your grossness and could be periodically cleaned out. 
and um, something that probably provided insulation. I, I mean, the insulation is, is the big thing, depending on the time of year, probably crucial. Yeah, because otherwise it's just, the, you know, dirt ground that you're sitting on. Anyway. In and around the houses, researchers have found objects made from the bones of elk, red deer, aurochs, and birds, as well as artifacts made of rare stone, including iron pyrite, amber, shale, and hematite. There's a delicately carved pendant believed to be the oldest Mesolithic art ever found in Britain, flint tools, and what look like headdresses made of red deer antlers. The headdresses are believed to be religious artifacts, suggesting that the people of this time had religious practices and beliefs probably strongly tied to nature. So, we do know that people in Mesolithic Europe did have permanent settlements, but did they have them specifically in Doggerland, in the sunken land? Again, finding ancient Mesolithic settlements under the sea is really, really hard. These people usually didn't build in stone. They built in wood or other biodegradable materials, and our evidence is basically post holes and extrapolation. We can see a lot of things with seismic data, but not post holes, right? I think you're going to prove me wrong. There have been some areas of Doggerland where a large concentration of artifacts have been found that led scientists to think there may have been large permanent settlements here. One of those is along the spines. Another is in an area called Brown Bank, which is an underwater ridge south of the outer silver pit lake slash river bottom. Supposedly, this area was near an enormous estuary that was flanked with large white chalk cliffs like the cliffs of Dover. That's another thing to picture here with Doggerland is that those massive white chalk cliffs existed. Those cliffs were like looming over this lowland area. Yeah, but there actually have been underwater settlements found, permanent houses that were part of the drowned world of Doggerland. One of the most prominent is called Boldner Cliff. Boldner Cliff is an underwater settlement in the Solent, which is the strait between the UK's southern coast and the Isle of Wight, which today is in the English Channel. According to current research, the Solent was submerged much later than the rest of Doggerland, possibly around 4000 BC, when seawater rose and flooded the Solent, cutting off the Isle of Wight from the mainland. Mud and silt covered over the settlement, keeping it surprisingly well-preserved. Since the 1960s, fishermen have been hauling up ancient artifacts from this area. In 1987, divers discovered the remains of a drowned forest over 8,000 years old beneath the waters of this strait. Subsequent dives revealed a submerged cliff face and the remains of extensive peat bogs in this strait as well. But it wasn't until 1999 that a diver spotted a lobster den with Mesolithic flint tools scattered outside its burrow. Apparently, the lobster had burrowed through the ancient mud deposits that had covered the whole area when the waters rose, digging into the preserved settlement beneath. Or maybe the lobster was just a really good archaeologist who was also interested in ancient lobsters that burrowed in that area during the Mesolithic period. That is what I'm going with. That was my thesis here, was that this lobster was like the head of the department. Okay, first off, the only department that's going to take me is going to be run by a lobster. <laughs> it's the underwater lobster archaeology department. And, and that was like their summer dig every year in this area and humans crashed it <laughs> that is literally the only department that would take me everyone else would take one look at my wild mane at gingerness and be like please please come back later when you've calmed down <laughs> well look the lobsters take everybody that's that's the thing about lobsters <laughs> anyway <laughs> divers and lobsters have been excavating here ever since and they're still bringing up artifacts the boldner cliff site appears to date from roughly 6200 to 6000 bc A number of things make this site really special. One is the fact that everything here is in situ. Most of the time, when artifacts come up from the seafloor and from the seafloor of Doggerland, they aren't found in situ. They're dragged up in fishing nets. So they've been, like, moved from where their original location was. But with the Boldner Cliff digs, archaeologists have been able to excavate things carefully, exactly where they fell, in context. Sometimes under the waves, but this area has a lot of really strong currents, so that isn't always possible. At other times, they do it by cutting out precise squares of seafloor and hoisting them up into boats to excavate them more carefully. So here is what archaeologists have found at the foot of these underwater cliffs. 
Large numbers of burnt flints, burnt clay, and charcoal, the remains of hearth fires, in sunken floors interpreted as possible permanent settlements similar to those at Howick and Star Car. Another thing that's special about this site is the sheer amount of organic material preserved under the silt deposited when the Solent was flooded. Wood has been preserved, huge mounds of work timber and split oak suggesting large wooden structures, maybe houses or large multifamily longhouses. One log appears to have been fashioned into a type of conduit, so maybe this was used for drainage? Were there toilets in these Mesolithic wooden houses? Indoor plumbing? I mean, yes please. We don't know, but it is fascinating to talk about. It is, and we do know that like the concept of indoor plumbing to ancient peoples was not as foreign as it became eventually during like the medieval times. <laughs> you know, it was there. It was there at Scarabray. It was there at um, the Indus Valley Civilization. They had really excellent indoor plumbing and toilets, and that is so awesome. And drainage. It's super important. It's super important. Like at different points in time, people have understood the importance of drainage and toilets and, and stuff like that and waste management. I mean, some of the stuff we're going to talk about this season, like in our first episode, we talked about waste management and the 10 plagues of Egypt, like waste management was super important. If you don't have it, you will have plagues. But one of the most fascinating discoveries is the remains of what appears to be a Mesolithic boat workshop, the oldest ever discovered in the world. Two platforms have been discovered where boat building is believed to have taken place, along with carpenters' tools, partially constructed log boats, and split oak timbers worked using techniques that it was previously believed didn't arise until 2,000 years later in the Neolithic. In addition to the boatyard, it appears that there was also a large-scale flint napping and clay production workshop here. One pit dug into the earth had been filled with Mesolithic industrial trash, burnt lumps of clay, superheated flint tools, and charcoal. It had been filled to the brim with hot stones and eventually covered over with a large slab of wood. Other pits contained wood chips, flakes of flint discarded from flint napping, and even fibers that seemed to have been maybe woven into string. This was a multi-purpose Mesolithic workshop where people produced boats, did woodworking, created flint tools and clay goods, and maybe things made of fiber, like fishing nets or rope. There also appear to have been large timber structures here, maybe a permanent house or settlement, more than one. And to add to these discoveries, DNA from domesticated wheat has also been found here, suggesting that people were even farming in Doggerland thousands of years before the Neolithic. This isn't the only Mesolithic settlement area found under the sea. Others have been found as well. One called Tybernvig, off the west coast of the Danish island of Finn, dates from around 5,500 BC. A number of Mesolithic and even Neolithic underwater sites have been found in Wismar Bay in Germany, the oldest dating from the 6,000s and 5,000s BC. Finds from these sites include worked wood, intricately carved paddles, flint tools, a bow encased in peat, wicker fish traps, fish hooks with pieces of line still attached, fishing spears, traces of houses with post holes and birch bark floors, textiles, entire boats, and even a double burial. A girl, about 13 to 14 years old, buried with a newborn baby, and all of it in nine feet of water, roughly 900 feet out from the shore. cliff, in particular, is a microcosm of Doggerland itself. It had a mighty river pouring into a large estuary, expansive peat bogs, ancient forests, and no doubt a wealth of animal and marine life. At one time, it may have looked out on a vast lowland paradise of more of the same. Huge legendary forests, rivers and estuaries, towering white cliffs, immense rivers that dwarfed the mightiest rivers of Europe in our time, saltwater and freshwater marshes, peat bogs and more, an environment that fostered an incredible diversity of life. This was a Mesolithic paradise, a European Serengeti, a vast biodiversity hotspot where human beings had all the food and raw materials we could ask for within arm's reach, an immense forest and wetland paradise as big as a second France. It was the beating heart of Mesolithic Europe. But what should be the tagline for this podcast, nothing good can ever stay. 
It's possible that Baldner Cliff looked out on a Mesolithic paradise when it was formed, but by the time it was abandoned, it had a view of a drowned world, because Baldner Cliff dates to almost exactly the time, to the century, maybe to the day when Doggerland died. It happened gradually, and then it happened all at once. You could say that Doggerland had been drowning since the glaciers started to recede, and dates are disputed. I can't say with certainty when sea levels were rising to what extent, but the general consensus is that the sea levels were rising from the day the tundra started to warm. The sea levels were rising the whole time. As soon as it was born, this rich paradise was already doomed. Studies showed that the rate of sea level rise at various times was roughly three to six feet per century. This continued for thousands of years, and it would have affected people early on. As early as 9000 BC, scientists believed there was a massive tidal bay stretching between the highlands of Dogger Bank and the eastern coast of England. This was perhaps the beginning of the UK becoming an island. By 7000 BC, the Shetlands, perhaps the most far-flung of Scotland's islands, were islands. The Orkneys, where our friends at Scarabray were, but not at this time, were still connected to the mainland. And the sea had encroached into Doggerland as far as the outer silver pit, flooding the lake. That's probably when everything turned brackish. Britain and Ireland were still connected to the mainland of Europe, but only by an increasingly narrow stretch of land. By the 6000s BC, according to some theories, Britain was cut off from the mainland entirely. Of course, these dates are not set in stone. I've seen other research put these dates at different times or say that Britain was fully cut off from the mainland by 7000 BC, for instance. This is just one way the progression could have gone, just to give you an idea. Yeah, and it's dramatic and I love it. How would this have affected the people who lived in Doggerland? Because so much of this territory was lowlands, whole swaths of land would have been covered by seawater within living memory. Estuaries would have broadened, vast rivers would have overflowed their banks, marshes would have drowned the forests. Just imagine that, enormous forests of towering trees rising up dead from a landscape of salt marshes. Dead, the wind would echo through them, there'd be branches but no leaves, the seasons would change and it would just stay ghostly and haunting. Sea of petrified forests rising up from the water. Endlessly reaching to the sky, waiting and waiting for the sun to warm them and bring back life that'll never come. Imagine being a person trying to get from point A to point B back then and having to take your dugout canoe and navigate through these immense ghostly forests. So it would have become increasingly difficult to navigate the waterways of Doggerland. Eventually, it would become hard to travel from mainland Europe to the UK at all without a boat even when the UK wasn't technically an island yet. Doggerland would have become a treacherous maze of tidal marshes, huge rushing rivers, and increasingly expanding bays racked by tidal currents. Studies show that at the outer silver pit, the huge inland lake that might also have been an enormous riverbed at one point, there are mountainous sandbanks that could only have been made by extremely strong tidal currents. This suggests that it would have been dangerous to cross this body of water as the seas rose, and possibly other bodies of water as well. It's possible that long before the UK was an island, it was essentially cut off to people and animals on the other side of Doggerland by a treacherous maze of tidal waters as large as Germany. The fast sea level rise would have led to cultural disorientation. And physical disorientation because the map of their landscape was always changing. The inhabitants of Doggerland would have seen well-known landmarks change and disappear within just a few generations. It's clear that they did at least have semi-permanent, if not permanent, settlements. They'd have had to pack up and move those every generation or so as the waters encroached and the amount of habitable land shrank. It must have been disorienting and frightening. It would also have led to displacement. As refugees from Doggerland moved upland, it's believed that conflict increased between highland and lowland peoples. You can see this in the archaeology. This is laid out in a National Geographic article, Searching for Doggerland, by Laura Spinney. Quote, There would have been huge population shifts, says Clive Waddington of the Derbyshire-based Archaeological Research Services Limited. People who were living out in what is now the North Sea would have been displaced very quickly. Some headed for Britain, at Howick in Northumberland, 
on the cliffs that run along Britain's northeast coast and would therefore have been the first hills they saw. His team has found the remains of a dwelling that had been rebuilt three times in the span of 150 years, among the earliest evidence of a settled lifestyle in Britain. The hut dates from around 7,900 BC. Waddington interprets its repeated habitation as a sign of increasing territoriality, the resident people defending their patch against waves of displaced Doggerlanders. To continue this quote, We know how important the fishing grounds were for the subsistence of these people, says Anders Fischer, an archaeologist at the Danish Agency for Culture in Copenhagen. If each generation saw its best fishing grounds disappear, they would have to find new ones, and that would often be in competition with neighboring groups. In societies of low social complexity, where you have no authorities to handle conflicts, it would probably have ended with violence. Doggerland went through this process of rising sea levels for thousands of years. At first, maybe it wasn't so bad, but toward the end, as the sea level rise accelerated, its people would have watched landscapes they knew disappear. Rivers overflowed their banks. They would have seen miles and miles of massive oak and alder and birch trees rising dead out of swampy marshes. Well-known hunting grounds were cut off. Permanent settlements had to be moved multiple times over generations. Conflicts arose with peoples who lived on higher ground. But this wasn't the end of Doggerland. No, Doggerland died in a single day. Remember the story we told you earlier about those very Christian monks showing church bells? Can you hear the church bells ringing, Jen? No, because they wouldn't have had church bells. So let's talk about what happened to Doggerland in that single day. Sometime between 6,200 and 6,000 BC, at the edge of the continental shelf of Norway, a ledge 180 miles long collapsed under the sea in a series of landslides called the Sturega Slides. These were the largest, most extensive underwater landslides that have ever happened on Earth that we know about. This vast underwater landslide created an enormous paleo tsunami. Actually, we've seen research that says it could have been multiple tsunamis, from two to as many as four. And in some places, they towered as high as 80 to 100 feet. And I'm going to just say this about tsunamis for a minute. Sometimes they're just waves, but sometimes they're a series of waves. Like the Boxing Day tsunami was definitely at least two waves. You think of it as just being the one wave, but a lot of times what goes out will then come back and then come back out in again. Right, because it bounces off the coastline of wherever the opposite coastline is and then comes back. Yes. So I think what you're saying is this might have been not just one series of tsunami waves, but four separate tsunami waves that were equally as big. Or maybe they weren't equally as big, but were also big. I don't know. Yeah, we're, all, we're also between 80 and 120 feet that may have also had little waves inside of them, which is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And that figure, 80 to 100 feet, I think this is a conservative estimate. And I haven't seen research about this, you know, like haven't seen research that backs up what I'm saying. I'm just telling you what I thought, reading more about tsunamis. This could be completely uninformed, but the highest tsunami ever recorded in human history was in Alaska in the 1950s when an earthquake caused a landslide in Latuya Bay that sent a 1,720-foot wave hurtling toward land. That landslide was a huge one, but it's not, it wasn't as large as the Storega slides. According to research, the Latuya Bay landslide involved 30 million cubic meters of rock, and that is a lot of rock. It produced a 1,720-foot wave. The Storega slides involved as much as 3,400 cubic kilometers of sediment, which is 3.4 trillion cubic meters of rock. That's a lot more rock. Plus, all of it was underwater, so all of the energy would have gone into the wave, whereas the rock slide at Latoya Bay involved rock from a mountain slide sliding into the bay, and some of it maybe didn't fall into the bay. I really don't know. And of course, you know, I'm sure there's other things about the topography and stuff that contribute to how big this wave is. But it seems like the landslide, the Storega Slides landslide, was just so much bigger than that one that it makes sense to me intuitively that the wave would have been bigger. Absolutely. And again, this is a landslide-based wave. It's not an earthquake-based wave that we're talking about or a volcanic-based wave. I have seen some suggestions that maybe an earthquake or a volcano caused it, but... I don't know. I don't think that's 
that's been conclusively proven? Could have. Yes. Yes. So if you want my guess, and like I said, I haven't seen research that supports this. This is just my guess. This wave would have been larger than any in recorded history. It could have been, right? By hundreds or even thousands of feet. Maybe. Maybe. All along the North Sea coastline, we see evidence of the violence of this event. We see traces of vast peat bogs ripped up and hurled hundreds of miles inland. Ancient forests knocked flat, lakes and rivers inundated by vast flows of salt water, and everything buried in sand. And this violent wave would have buried Doggerland. You can see the effect under the water. In 2013, researchers discovered a submerged forest about 600 feet off the coast of Norfolk that had clearly been knocked flat. These were enormous oak trees, part of an immense forest, the extent of which has not been fully mapped. But what divers saw under the water was huge ancient tree trunks lying prone, piled high on top of each other, as if some enormous force had ripped up the entire forest and thrown it. The date of this forest is a little unclear from what I found. What I keep seeing coming up in the news coverage about this is that experts believe it could be 10,000 years old, which would be about 2,000 years older than the Storega slides, which have been pretty accurately dated. But then again, you know, some of those trees could have been 2,000 years old when they were ripped up. I haven't seen this underwater forest linked to the Storega slides, but even if it's not, and what else could knock an entire forest flat? I think it's likely that this massive tsunami could have easily knocked flat entire Doggerland forests, just picked them up and hurled all those massive logs ahead as the wave rolled over a landscape as big as France. What people would have seen wasn't just a towering wall of water, which is terrifying enough in itself, but a churning thousand-foot-high juggernaut of millions of ripped-up old-growth trees, thousands or millions of cubic miles of peat bogs, earth, boulders, and other detritus sweeping across the landscape, devouring everything in its path. You cannot outrun this. Nobody who caught a glimpse of this juggernaut would have survived. Researchers have done carbon dating on plant materials associated with the paleo-tsunami debris, and they're fairly confident of the date of the tsunami, between 6,225 and 6,170 BC. This is right around the time the settlement at Boldnar Cliff was founded, and this area, incidentally, may have been one of the few places where people might have witnessed that tsunami and lived. The Isle of Wight has multiple dramatic chalk cliff faces some of which drop over 300 feet down to the sea. The area on the mainland of the UK is also home to some of the most dramatic white chalk cliff faces in the country. The infamous white cliffs of Dover, rising about 350 feet above the sea, are only about 130 miles away. The highest chalk cliff in the UK, Beachy Head, which rises 531 feet above sea level, is just 88 miles away. Maybe a few days walk if you're really good at walking and you're fit. It may have been the only safe place near the coast to watch this wave come in. And bear in mind that these cliffs would have been higher then by maybe 100 feet or more because the seas were lower. So who knows? I mean, this is conjecture. This is partially my fan fiction, but it's possible. We don't know that Boldner Cliff was founded before or after the tsunami. We don't know the timing here. But it's possible, and again, this is just one story I'm writing in my head, that those people may have witnessed this event, or maybe it had occurred in living memory. Maybe their elders had told the story. These may have been people carrying the trauma of an unfathomable natural disaster that had drowned the world as they knew it. They may even have been refugees. We don't know. We don't know, and we saw something like this when we talked about curfew, right? Like, when you have people who's whose life had been sort of really about the water and things that came from the sea, all of a sudden move up into the mountains and far away where they could see the sea from a safe distance. That's kind of what we're seeing here, but even earlier than Carfee, obviously. You saying that just makes me think that possibly Boldner Cliff came before the tsunami, because if they had seen that happen, they wouldn't have wanted to settle near the sea. And this would have been near the coast. I don't know. Again, this is just my guess. This has not been proven. So research suggests that the tsunami wasn't the complete end of Doggerland. One theory states that after the tsunami, some parts of Doggerland remained above water, creating a kind of archipelago in the North Sea. According to this theory, the archipelago provided an important stepping stone, allowing travel from the UK to the mainland of Europe 
long after most of Doggerland was under the waves. That archipelago is now the Dogger Bank, which is now under 50 to 120 feet of water. What caused the flooding of this last bit of Doggerland? Well, the seas continue to rise, and they may have risen faster after the Paleo Tsunami. There is also a second event that some researchers point to as another nail in the coffin of Doggerland, the draining of Lake Agassiz. Lake Agassiz was an enormous freshwater lake in North America that covered over 170,000 square miles, engulfing parts of Manitoba and Ontario, Saskatchewan, Minnesota, and North Dakota. Those did not exist then, but that's the region. It dwarfed the Great Lakes. It was larger than any lake that currently exists in the world. It was roughly about as big as the Black Sea. This was a proglacial lake formed by glacial meltwater held back by a dam of some kind, a moraine of earth, or maybe a barrier of ice. Lake Agassiz was formed roughly around 28,000 BC, and it had expanded and contracted a number of times in its history. But around 6,200 BC, that narrow dam holding back all that water finally broke, and the lake drained almost completely dumping a titanic volume of cold, fresh water through the Great Lakes drainage basin and into the Arctic Ocean. This caused a massive rise in sea levels all around the globe, by almost 10 feet in some places. Some believe it's this that inspired flood myths all around the world, and the sheer volume of fresh water may have changed the salinity content of the sea. This disrupted ocean currents, causing global temperatures to drop even as coastlines disappeared beneath the waves. We don't know if Lake Agassiz occurred before or after the Stroega slides. The date of its draining is roughly 6,200 BC, which is almost exactly the same time. According to the geological and carbon dating evidence, these two events were practically simultaneous. Of course, they could have happened a century or two apart, or maybe separated by only a few years or decades. But either way, Lake Agassiz could have been devastating in its own right. One way it could have gone is this. The draining of Agassiz happened just a few years or even decades after the enormous tsunami, when that event was still in living memory, passed down by survivors and perhaps immortalized in flood myths. People still lived on the archipelago of the Dogger Bank and used it to move back and forth between the mainland and the UK. But just a few decades, or maybe a century after that tsunami, the sea would have started to rise even faster than it had in living memory. At the same time, the temperature dropped significantly. The Dogger Bank archipelago would have experienced a sudden drop in temperature. Animals would have fled or died. Plants that people relied on would have died off. It would have been a time of starving and freezing, and the final inhabitants may have risked their lives in dugout canoes across the treacherous waters of the North Sea as we know it today, to make their final way to safety. So that's how Doggerland met its end. Gradually, after thousands of years of disappearance and displacement and forgetting, and then suddenly all at once, in one single night, it was a land of richness, a land of plenty, studded with boat workshops and flint workshops and Celtic roundhouses and maybe villages. Legend says that the people of Lyoness committed some horrible crime that made God drown their kingdom. This legend was first written down in the 1400s by Sir Thomas Mallory, but it may be part of a much older legend that speaks to the truth of what happened to Doggerland. It's quite possible that it's just one of dozens of flood myths that appear in folklore and folk memory all throughout Europe, mythical drowned cities off the coast of Brittany, legends of drowned kingdoms off the coast of Wales, the floods of blood that engulf the earth in Finnish and Norse mythology, the flood myths that occur in Gaelic mythology. Often these floods are caused by terrible monsters, witches, or even the gushing wounds of injured heroes. Is it possible that Lioness and these other myths are ancient memories preserved in mythology with explanations people included to make sense of the sudden changes in their world? Yes. <laughs> so Sir Thomas Mallory's telling of this story Christianized it and linked it to King Arthur. But perhaps, just perhaps, this is a remnant of a more ancient tale in which a god or monster sent a massive wave that engulfed a land that in its heyday was a paradise, a forgotten country, as big as France, that once provided humans with everything they needed and more. May we keep it forever in our hearts. 
That's it for this week. Once once again, you're here for the blowing up of the summer, and it's so cheery. Time to blow up the summer. <laughs> Look, there's no hot girl summer. There's no fed girl summer. It's just uh, drowned world summer. That's where we are. <laughs> drowned world summer. That's it. Yes. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. In the meantime, you can find us on social media at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And join our Patreon. This is what enables us to keep doing this podcast. You get extra content, you get extra videos and episodes from us, and you can find it at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. We have some patrons to thank. We do. Apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Tone Helen Ostrand, Francesca Cook, Robin, just Robin, Nick, just Nick, Haley Horan, Harmony Andrews, and Ruth D. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. 